0: Everyone again to River Valley Community Church. So glad to see everyone here worshiping with us this morning. We are continuing our journey through the book of Titus. We'll be in Titus chapter 2 at the end of the chapter 2 here in a minute. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there in preparation if you so wish. Uh, we've been going through this book for a couple of weeks now. I think this is our fifth week going through this, and we're seeing what God is telling us and speaking to us through this book, as He wrote, uh, using Paul, writing this to a leader in the church, a, church, a, a person who was planting churches and helping shore them up. And we've seen how God cares about the local church. He cares about what we believe and how we act and how we represent. God to the community around us. And so hopefully it's been beneficial for all of us as we've seen how God calls upon us to live our faith in bold and real ways. And today we're going to see just what that faith is and, and what we believe in. And so before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time that we can gather before you as your people and sit under your word and learn about you and know you. Lord, I just pray for this time as as we read the Scripture, as we look upon it, that you can bring it to life in our hearts and our minds, that we can see you for who you are, that we can see your wonderful salvation and be amazed by it and be moved by it to follow and know you. Lord, I just pray for everyone here in this room this morning, whatever we bring with us to this Sunday morning, I just pray that we can see you in it. That the hardships and trials we might be experiencing, the worries that might be nagging at us, that we can see beyond them to see the person who is in control, which is in you. See the person who loves us, the God who loves us, and is working in all these things to grow us to become more and more like your Son. Lord, we love you, we seek you, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Salvation. When we read Titus, talk, it talks about this great salvation we have, but it's, it's central to our beliefs, and so the Bible talks about often this great salvation we have, but it's not just uh, that Christians worry about this or talk about this. Actually, the whole world, whole of humanity, is looking for this salvation. They not, might not phrase it that way. That's going to bug me. I to keep on hitting that. I can't keep rhythm, so you don't want me hitting that, so... But all of humanity is looking for this salvation. They might phrase it differently, but they're looking for something that meets their need. They're looking for something that frees them from what is hanging over them. They're looking for salvation, even though they might know it, because it is humanity's greatest need that ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, all of humanity has been cursed to be separated from Him, and they need to be saved from themselves. We need to be saved from ourselves, from our sin, from, from our, our estrangement from God, from the ways in which we rebel against Him. But since all humanity is looking for this or longing for this, mistakes can happen when people look for salvation and when they, when they think about how God saves them. Some people might approach the idea of God and say, well, if God is good, then that means all people must be saved, right? That he will just wipe away sin, that he just deals with it, that everyone is okay, and they can just keep on living how they want. But that's not what the Bible shows. Because the Bible also shows that God is just and that sin must be paid for. Well, then some people say, well, okay, then maybe good people make it. Maybe if you're good enough you'll be saved. Maybe if you're good enough, you'll make it to God, but the problem is there, it's how good is good enough? And the fact is that we can't be good enough, that the, the standard that God sets is perfection, and we cannot live up to that standard. So we found wanting. Other people say, well, 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 there's so many other faiths in the world. Maybe it's just if you're sincere in what you believe. If you're just sincere in how you follow what you believe, then, then that would be okay. That's how you can be saved. But again, when we read the Bible when we approach who God is as displayed to us in truth, we see that's not how it works because as Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That we can only be saved through Jesus Christ, and that there's only one way, as Jesus himself said, he is the way, the truth, the life. That to come to the Father, we have to enter through him. So when you're thinking about salvation, obviously we can approach it these wrong ways, but how do we approach it rightly? When we read the Bible, we see different ways in which the Bible authors, God speaking through them, talks about our great salvation. We can read in John chapter 3 and we see Jesus himself saying how everyone must be born again, that people have to be spiritually reborn to be saved. We can read Romans 3 where it talks about how we are justified in faith in Christ, that we're justified by faith alone, made right with God by faith alone. We can look at 2 Corinthians 5 about how we are reconciled with God through Jesus, that we are estranged but now he brings us back. We can look at Galatians 3 about how we're delivered from the curse of the law, that our humanity stood under this curse and we could not live up to God's standard, but we're delivered now through Jesus Christ from that curse and brought back into relationship. We can read Hebrews 7-10 through about how Jesus is our perfect priest who intercedes for us perfectly before God. Not only that, but he's also our perfect sacrifice, bringing us to God, satisfying the demands of God. We could read in 1 John about in chapter 2 and chapter 4 using that great word that Jesus is our propitiation, meaning that Jesus atones for our sin, he makes it right, he satisfies the requirements, he satisfies the wrath of God, and he brings us to God. And then we could read in Titus 2 about how the salvation that we celebrated is based on the grace of God and it's for the glory of God. So let's open up to Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15 and just see this great salvation that we rest in and we celebrate this morning. Paul speaking to Titus says this in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you." When I look at that passage, how could I sum up what it talks about our salvation? And it's just this, the gospel redeems and renovates. That we can think about the gospel in this two kind of parts that the the gospel redeems us. It brings us back to God. It pays for the penalty of our sins. It redeems us. It saves us. But at the same time the realities of the gospel renovates us. It changes us from the inside out. And so that we're no longer who we were when God saves us, but we're changed. We're made new. We're born again, as Jesus said. And now we become more and more like Christ. That The whole emphasis of God working in our lives is to reform us and renovate us from the inside out to be like his Son. That the great news of Jesus Christ who came and was born for us and lived for us and died for us and rose for us, saves us and brings us back in that relationship with God. But at the same time, the realities of that gospel being applied to us by the Holy Spirit now change us and we're made new and we live for God in all of our life. That the gospel redeems and renovates. And we see that in this passage, I'm convinced. About our glorious salvation. But as I was reading this passage, I actually was struck by something interesting, at least interesting to me. And as when I read this passage, I cannot help but see the Trinitarian nature of salvation. So as Christians, we believe that God is Trinity, meaning that God exists as the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, that they share essence, but they are distinct persons. And we believe this is true, and we see it acting, and we have to realize that in all things that God does, all three persons of the Trinity are active in our lives. And that's actually true with salvation, that we see this played out in scriptures like this, as well as other scriptures, that God is active in all of his being, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can easily put in salvation that the Father plans and sends the Son to save us. The Son goes and lives for us and saves us. He accomplishes salvation, and the Holy Spirit takes the salvation accomplished by the Son and applies it to believers who believe in Jesus. They're all active, and when we read this passage, we see that. And so I'm going to break down this passage in the active parts of the Trinity in work in our lives about salvation. So we start as Paul does here talking about how God the Father saves us. That God the Father actually initiates salvation. That salvation starts with His grace. As Paul says for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That salvation starts with God loving us and is based on His grace. That the grace of God is that unmerited favor that God has towards us. Or we could sum it up as God's goodness and kindness, his compassion, his mercy demonstrated towards sinners. The people who don't deserve God's love get it. People who have done nothing to earn God's favor receive it. People who wanted nothing to do with God now are brought into God's family because Jesus was sent to die for sinners. Salvation starts with God. He initiates it, he brings it to completion, and he brings us home. That starts with God. Salvation starts on that basis of grace, of his love for us, the Father's love for us. Which is important because when we're talking about the Trinity and salvation, we must never kind of get this weird idea that God the Father somehow is the one that's mad at us and Jesus comes and, and, and has to speak on his behalf. No, God loved us, even while we're sinners, even while we're rebels, God loved us and sent his Son, and so this is his plan from the start. He initiates it, and he brings us back into, our, into his family through Jesus Christ. We see this initiation of God, it reminds me of... First John four nineteen, which says, "We love because He first loved us; that God first loved us, and so we are changed." Salvation starts with grace; it's based on God's grace. One commentator says, "Grace is that one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ, given freely to sinners for salvation." Salvation starts with Father, the God the Father in heaven as he decides to save those who've gone wayward, which is all of us. And the extent of that salvation, as we see, the extent of that offer is for all people. As he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people meaning that there is no ethnic requirement, there's no economic requirement, there's no standard in and of yourself that somehow you have to meet to be saved, that for all people, all sorts of people, all kinds of people across this whole globe, this salvation is offered. It's not for one select group or another, but it's for all people, that he's bringing that salvation for all who believe. That God has an open arms offer invitation for salvation. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are included in that. And that's His plan from the beginning. He's going to gather everyone. And we see that at the end in Revelation. Who is gathered before the throne of God but His people from every tongues and tribes and people? The whole earth is gathered before God. Those people who believe from all these people are gathered before God, praising His name. That there's an open arms invitation from God in the salvation that He has planned. That he's going to bring these people who believe in him who believe in jesus christ to him from all sorts of people it's a reminder to us that as we're sharing the great truths of god that we don't get to decide who gets to hear and who doesn't get to hear that when we look at people they're all made in the image of god and they're all welcome to hear the true gospel and that god's the one working so they respond through him working in their hearts but we're called to offer that free Offer of salvation to all who believe, trusting God to be at work. For the salvation, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But we also see in this passage, if we just go down a couple of verses, that this is all for the glory of God as well. As as Paul is saying, In in verse 13, that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God. That we're waiting for the appearing of that glory of God, that God gets the glory. Why? Because He started it, and He's going to finish it, and He's going to do the work in between as He brings us to Him. So God gets the glory of salvation as well and we're waiting for that final time when Jesus comes again in His glory and we're waiting with that expectation, with hope, because God gets the glory because He is the one who saves. That when we think about this great salvation, it starts with grace and is offered to all sorts of people and He gets the glory because He is doing the work. This is the salvation from the Father so you see that, and when you see that great salvation, it should fill us with awe. We should see this and see the wonderful salvation that's offered and described by Paul here in this text and we should be filled with awe as we see love and mercy and grace being poured out on people who don't deserve it. As we see in our own lives how God met us where we did not want to be met because we didn't want anything to do with Him but He moved in our lives and He brought us back. It should bring us to our knees and worship as we praise His holy name, as we see His greatness and we're in wonderment. How can such an almighty God who created all things care? About me. How could he love me to this extent? But he does. When I'm at my worst, he still loves me. When I'm at my best, he still loves me. When I have wandered away, he still loves me and he's still moving in my life. And that is the grace of God. And it brings us to that place of worship as we are in, in, in marvel at who God is and how he brings the salvation to us. But we also see in this text the fact that the gospel redeems and, re- and renovates. The Father starts with grace and redeems us. He brings us back, but he doesn't leave us there. He renovates us, and we see in that the work of the Holy Spirit. For we see then in, in verses 12 and 13, when Paul says, This uh, this grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When I read that, I cannot help but see the act of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And you might say, well, I don't see the Holy Spirit anywhere. And you're right. It's explicitly not said that the Holy Spirit's there. We have to wait until... Titus 3.5, for for Paul to mention, Titus about the Holy Spirit. But it's implicitly implied throughout that whole passage. For how can a Christian be trained in godliness? How can they live self-controlled, upright lives in this person's age? How can they do that? How could they have the faith to wait for Jesus to return? It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. For again again, as we read the Bible, we see this truth that when the Spirit, the Spirit comes upon us, and the Spirit is what transforms us from the inside out. The Spirit is what gives us the fruits of the Spirit, where we can walk in faithfulness to God. The Spirit is actually what makes us what we are supposed to become in Christ. That transformation happens when the Holy Spirit is working and applying the salvation of Christ in our lives. And that that transformation is the natural result. So if you ever have been in a, you know, looked at an info commercial for exercise routine or supplements or something, they usually show those pictures of before and after transformations that, you know, usually are a result of good lighting and probably maybe even different actors. But it's, it's that fact that people want to see that transformation, right? They want to see what is the difference this is going to make? What change is going to happen? A couple of years ago, I did this like six-week program where I was working out and doing a diet plan, and they wanted you to take a picture of your before self and then to take a picture of your, your after self. And the hope there is that you see a transformation, that you be encouraged by that. I was not that hopeful at the end. But the hope is that you see a transformation happen. And that is what this Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit transforms us. That training in godliness, that we're trained to follow God. Training for us to renounce the ways that are against God, renounce ungodliness. Training and working us that we can control, live self-controlled lives, upright lives. In this present age, in an age that's trying to make us walk away from God, in an age that's trying to live for ourselves or trying to say it's okay to be you and, and no one can judge you, in this age that's leading you astray, the Holy Spirit works in us and trains and applies to the salvation of Christ so that we can walk and live for God and all of our life. And that is how, that's how the Holy Spirit works, because the Holy Spirit gets in us. And from the inside out we are changed as it starts giving us the fruit of the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit starts growing in our lives not so much because we're getting better on ourselves but because it's the Spirit working in us. It's the fruit of the Spirit that this love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, and self-control come about because the Spirit is working in our lives and bringing these to fruition, to completion in our lives as a as God is at work in our lives. That the Holy Spirit involved in salvation as we see this just training and this waiting is is bringing us to become what we're supposed to be. I've already kind of mentioned it, but if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've been saved by him, you've been saved for a purpose. So often we think about, oh, the, the fantastic salvation, that's good, and we draw on that, and we celebrate. We have been saved. We've been saved from sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. And the consequences, we have been saved from the enemy, and we, we know that, and we've been saved from this world, and we have heaven waiting in us, and we celebrate that, and we should, but we forget that we're saved for a purpose, and that is to be conformed to the likeness of the Son. We see that in Romans uh, uh, Romans 8, 29, when it's talking about this golden, train, uh, golden chain of salvation, and it says that we're saved. Why? To be conformed to the image of the Son. The purpose in which God saves us is not just for us just to be us. It's not just for us to live how we want to, but it's to live for Him and to be changed. That we're called to be transformed, and the Holy Spirit does that as we become what we're supposed to be, what we're called to be in Christ. That's the Holy Spirit working on us. Not only is the Holy Spirit transforming us, training us, but the Holy Spirit is giving us the faith to wait. Because That's the second aspect here. Is that we're not just being trained, right? But we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That the whole Christian life is one of waiting for God to do what he has said he's going to do. And we wait with confidence and we wait with faith, trusting God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is giving us that gift of faith. And because we can wait for the Holy Spirit working in us, we can actually look to what we're supposed to look to. Because we're all looking at something, right? And where you look is actually where you end up going When I first started riding a motorcycle, we took this motorcycle class and uh, for a safety thing, I think it gave us a good, you know, deduction on insurance. And so when I was in high school and writing was taking this class, and a big thing they always say is that where you look is where you go. And so they are really really strict on where you walk and it's where you're looking, because it's true. On our motorcycle, you can feel it really easily. When you look over this, you have a tendency to start to drift that way. And it's the same thing in life. Where you look is where you go, and what you're looking at determines where you're gonna be heading. And so this is an encouragement that we're waiting for the glory of God to come when Jesus returns again. And that's where we set our focus. That's where he Point our eyes, that's where we set our hopes on, is that we're waiting for Jesus to return and make all things right. We're waiting for him to come and fulfill all promises, that we know the great salvation we have, we know the great community we have, and we're supposed to call people to this great salvation as we wait for him to return with confidence and faith, and we focus our eyes on him. And when we do that, we start following and naturally going where he wants us to go, and living the ways in which he has called us to live. We wait with confidence. The Holy Spirit allows us to grab hold of that faith and to look where we're supposed to look. That we can look to Him and wait expectantly. Sometimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit, people naturally start going back to the works of in Acts where you see these great miracles happen and these great things that truly did happen and how the Holy Spirit worked there. And we're like, well, that's how the Holy Spirit works, right? And I say, yes, that is also how the Holy Spirit works. But that's not only how the Holy Spirit works. For the Holy Spirit works in the everyday life of a believer, as you put one foot in front of the other and you seek to glorify God. The Holy Spirit actually is actually working on you and working in you to transform you, giving the faith to live as a believer in a world that is dark. And that is actually the prominent way in which the Holy Spirit works. It is drawing you, giving you the power to live for God in all things. And We are all as we believe in Jesus Christ being worked on by the Spirit to live for God and to trust in Him because the gospel redeems and renovates. It saves us, and then it changes us. It renews us, makes us God's people in all these things. And we also see prominently in this passage that salvation is not just by the grace of God, and it's not just by the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's also because the Son came, and the Son saved us. Jesus Christ is the one who saves us. And I think we see this most prominently in verse 14 as we're reading this, this passage. We see this, this, this is what we're waiting for, and what Jesus did. And we see this, and actually I would say you could almost apply the tenses of salvation to this passage. That there's a fact that God saved us through Jesus Christ in the past. in the historical event on the cross and he saves us presently right now as we need salvation and he's going to save us in the future as as he brings us home. But we see this in the past. And so in verse 14, as we're waiting for this, this coming of our Savior Jesus Christ, it says this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so when I read that, I can't help but see this great this great salvation we have in Jesus Christ. That Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all unlawlessness. That on that cross, almost 2,000 years ago, as Jesus was led there, as he died for us, our sins, our sins presently, our sins that we still are waiting to commit, were nailed with him to that cross. He saved us. It's done. It's completed. In the past, at that event in history, he saved us. And when you think about that, we can say our justification, our right standing with God, was achieved for us on that monumental day when he died for us. We have been saved. And that's a point, period. And we can trust in that if you believe in Jesus. You have been saved. But we have hope for the present as well. Because as it says, not only did he save us to, uh, to redeem us from all lawlessness, but also to purify for himself a people. That right now, presently, we are being purified. Kind of like we talked with the Holy Spirit, but Jesus through the Holy Spirit, is purifying us, training us, changing us, making us Him. He is making us His people. He is bringing to Him a people who don't say who they were, but are now being changed by Him. And we call that sanctification, as we become more and more like who God wants us to be. He's purifying us present tense right now, in this life, at this moment, in this week. He's bringing you and purifying you to be His people. But not only that, as we look towards a future, our future does not depend on ourselves. It's already been secured by him. Because he's not only he did not only die to redeem us for all in lawlessness, and he's not right now purifying for himself a people, but he's making a people for his own possession. That we are his. And what Christ has called his cannot be anyone else's. And that we as a people are being saved for him to be his own possession. And the future, our future is secure because we know whose we are. We call that the great idea or doctrine of glorification. That where we are presently is not where we end up because we know where our future is and he's bringing us home and we will share in his glory in some way, reflect his glory like we were meant to do from the very beginning. And in that you see this great thing of salvation that Christ has secured for us. That he did it in the past. It is active right now in the future. It has a hope for the future right now. It's active right now in the present. It has a hope for the future as he's saving us. He saved us. He's saving us. And he will save us at the end as we're glorified with him. We're made his own possession. For humanity, those who did not know Christ, were once Satan's. But now we are the sons as we believe in him. Who we were once is no longer who we are now in Christ. And this results in this change that we're fundamentally changed to be his. As he ends with that, a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. That we're changed and now because we're changed we now do what we've been called to do. We love people like we've been called to love people. We serve people like we've been called to serve people. We seek the good in them and we proclaim the truth of who Christ is to all who would hear. That we're zealous for those good works to serve people for the sake of Christ. I love some passages that talk about this love that when you realize the fact of who Christ is and how He loves us it changes you. It pulls you forward. Second Corinthians, uh, verses uh, five fourteen, Paul talks about for the love of God. I think it's uh, for the love of Christ controls us. Some some translations compels us that the love of Christ, when you realize what it means, when you realize the truth of it, and what He did to save you, it controls us. It compels us. It pulls us forward, and we are changed because of it. We see the same logic in Ephesians 2, 8-10 about how we have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not from ourselves. This is a gift to God, not by works so that no one can boast that the fact that the Holy Spirit has given us this faith, has given us this grace, and that we believe in it and we're saved. Why? So that we can do the good works that Christ has prepared before for us to do because we're his good workmanship. That we're supposed to work through what Christ has prepared for us to do as a result of this salvation we have in Him. That we're changed. That the gospel redeems and renovates us from the inside out. This is the truth, the wonderful gospel that we celebrate. So how does the church respond? I think we just look at verse 15 and we see how we're supposed to respond to this truth, this wonderful gospel, this wonderful salvation that we have that we declare these things. That the church, corporately, should be known as a place where these truths are declared. The church corporately should be the place where people know they can come and hear about God and hear about this great salvation and know how they can receive Christ as the Lord and Savior. That the church should be declaring these things. That of all the things that the church is known for, that should be number one on the list. That while we, yes, we do other projects and we help people in need and we're reaching out in the community, what we should be known for and what should be our core to our identity is that we declare the truth of the gospel so that everyone can know and they know this is the place where they can hear the truth of who God is and how we can respond to his great salvation. And also individually, I would argue this applies for us as well, that we should be defined by this as individuals, that we declare these things. That doesn't mean that you have to be a bible thumper. doesn't mean that you have to carry a Bible to your workplace and hit people over the head with it. No, but it means that you are ready and all seasons, to declare the truth of God. As conversations go, and you can, in a winsome, loving manner, declare the truth of God to all who would listen to you, that we're all ready to do these things for the glory of God, so that people can hear the great salvation and respond to it. Not only in outward do we clear these things, but we also exhort Otherwise, encourage that the community should be known as an encouraging community. That when one of us slips up and fails, like we all do, the community does not keep up shame and exile them. No, we exhort people and encourage people and give them a lifting hand. And we say, lean on me, brother or sister, and let's walk together. We are a community that encourages one another, exhorts one another to live for Christ. We don't excuse sin, but we address it and say, walk with me. I'm here for you, for I too am a sinner stumbling towards Christ, and let's do it together. Corporately, we are are defined by that as we love each other well and individually we should be defined by that as we become people of encouragement, speaking truth with love into our brothers' and sisters' lives, encouraging people to live on, be spurred on towards love and good deeds and all that we do. But we also rebuke with all authority that the church actually rebukes what's wrong in the ways of the world. or rebukes people when they follow the ways of the world, when they get off track and they look towards other things, that they rebuke with love, they actually take the stand and say, that's not what we believe. That's not true, and let's walk in love, and let's be corrected because of it. And that this is not just the corporate uh, church's responsibility, but all of us, as we're in relationship with people we love, we, we lovingly, gently rebuke people who need to be brought back to the truth, and I love how Paul ends. Let no one dis- disregard you. And yeah, he's speaking to Titus here, and Titus was a young man, and it probably carries his connotations. He's like, let people not not listen to you and these churches in Crete, but I think that implies for all of us, the church itself, is that this truth of the gospel cannot be disregarded. So often, I think sometimes when we share the gospel, when we share, we proclaim it true. But we do it once. We say, oh, "Okay, I did my duty," and we check it off, and we just continue to live with people like we have been. But this is saying no. We cannot let it be disregarded. We cannot be silenced. We cannot give up. We declare it and declare it again with love, with patience, knowing that God's work. But this is our duty: is not to let this be disregarded. That we hold it forth again. And again, this is how the church responds to this great salvation, is that we proclaim it and we bring people back who have wandered away from it because the gospel redeems and renovates. This is the great salvation we live in light of. This is the great salvation that we celebrate this morning. This is the great salvation that we should, as Christians, celebrate every single day, that we live in light of who God is and how he has saved us. The reformer Martin Luther has this great saying, he says, I live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming tomorrow. What he's saying is that my life is lived in the reality of this. So often as Christians, we can put this away. This, like, Oh, these events happened 2,000 years ago. Oh, the future is going to be thousands of years in the future. It doesn't seem relevant, but no. As this reformer tell, tells us, no, we live in light of them. We live as this, this has just happened because it's as relevant to our lives as if, if it did. We trust and him and live in light of this great salvation that he has saved us and that is active right now in our lives and because of that we marvel and we worship god because we have seen this great salvation that our life lived now is lived between christ's resurrection and the second coming and so we live in this place of great marvel and worship of what he has saved us from and how he has saved us and as marvel and worship as we expect him to come again and what waits us in the future. And we praise him and worship him in the meantime as the church has done since it was founded. That we live in this place and we marvel at it. So what what does that mean for your life? How can you marvel at this great salvation? How how does it bring you to a new place of worship? How How do you respond to this great salvation in your life? How, how should you respond to it? I've already given you the fact that it brings us to a height of worship, and it changes how we live presently as we seek to apply and respond to salvation, declaring these things, bringing people back, and keep on preaching the gospel. So let's do that as a church, and I encourage you all to do that individually, wherever you are in this world. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank You so much for Your Word. The truth of the Gospel that we can read and we can celebrate and we can marvel at as we see how You have moved throughout time. The history of salvation now. How You have saved us in the past through Jesus Christ and how You continue to save us presently and how You will save us in the future as we're brought home to You. And Lord, I just pray for all of us today that we can be Yours. That we can Know the truth that anyone, anyone who does not know that truth of that great salvation can look towards you and know it and respond to it. And that those of us that do know the truth of that salvation, that we can walk in your ways and be trained in righteousness and wait for that blessed hope. Lord, we love you and we seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.